good to see each of you this morning. If you would, please look with me in Colossians chapter 2, and we'll begin our reading in verse 16 once again this morning. On last week, we began this portion of the text, verses 16 through 19 of Colossians chapter 2, in which we were not able to complete the entirety of the text, and so we want to do our best this morning to finish our study of this portion. We still have another portion to follow to close out the chapter, of course, verses uh, 20 through 23, but we'll look at verses 16 through 19 this morning for our reading. We begin in verse 16, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head from which all the body and joint, by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered and knit together, increaseth with the increase of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer again this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we Thank you for the privilege it is to stand and proclaim your word today. We thank you for every soul that is gathered in this place. Lord, we thank you for the truth of the body of Christ and how you have joined us together that we might edify one another and strengthen one another in your love and your truth and your grace. And Father, we pray that as we do so, may we be prepared to stand bold in the faith and in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I do pray for every soul that is gathered here this day, and for those, Lord, that are here that know not Christ, we pray that your Spirit might work in those hearts and lives. For all those who are followers of you, I pray that we might be strengthened in the faith and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord, may it be that through our time together that you are glorified, that you are honored, and that your body is strengthened to be used by uh, the working of your Spirit in each and every one of us, Lord, to go into a world that is full of spiritual darkness and chaos that we might be, again, faithful as stewards of the gospel. And Lord, as we read today from your word and as we study your word, may you give us hearts to receive, eyes to see, and ears to hear. And Lord, may your truth take deep root within each of us that we might be further prepared, Lord, for the task that lies before us as followers of Christ. And Lord, may we be faithful in demonstrating your grace and your love while standing in your truth to a world in desperate need. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you and be seated. Last week, as I mentioned, we did not have time to finish our study of verses 16 through 19, in which Paul continued this exhortation to the Colossian believers to remain focused on Christ. And as I had mentioned last week to you, within this particular portion of the chapter and exhortation, Paul gives practical examples of how the Colossian believers were to give heed in not allowing anyone to distract them from the preeminence and from the lordship of Jesus Christ. And I again will remind you that everything that Paul states in the following verses of this chapter is based on the truth of God's working of making us complete or fulfilled in Christ, as he's previously mentioned in the verses prior to these, in which God has provided us this freedom, as Paul mentions in verse 16. Paul used the admonition, let no man, with twice in the remaining verses of this chapter, in verse 16 and verse 18, if you look with me, let no man therefore judge you, Paul said. And then verse 18, let no man beguile you. 
And as we examined on last week, Paul exhorts the Colossian church to not allow others to put them into religious bondage, which would mean that they were neglecting the freedom that God had provided them in Christ. And in verse, verses 16 and 17, we see Paul gives this portion of the exhortation, and when he says, do not allow or let no man deny you of your liberty in Christ. Now, let me just pause before we read uh, verses 16 and 17, because important that I, I preface with this, and we dealt with this somewhat last week already, but we need to be mindful concerning our liberty in Christ. Listen, as believers in Jesus Christ, we should rejoice in our liberty. We should, uh, we should be thankful and grateful for the liberty that we have in Christ, that is found only in Christ. And also we understand that a biblical perspective of such liberty, as Paul gives warning uh, in other passages, is that we are to never use that as an occasion for the flesh. Liberty is not meant as an occasion for you to gratify yourself or your, or your fleshly desires. That's not the purpose of liberty, but rather the purpose of liberty is that we, by love, then might serve one another, serving the Lord and serving one another. And so God has given us this, this liberty in which we should never apologize for the liberty. And I find it interesting that sometimes people, I believe, feel as though they are to be pressured in the sense of apologizing almost, at least feeling a sense of remorse in a way for the liberty that God has given them rather than rejoicing in the liberty and rather than embracing that liberty and rather than living in that liberty. But at the same time, again, the warning would be heralded and needs to be heralded that we are not to use such liberty as an occasion just to satisfy or gratify ourselves or the flesh, but rather use that in love to serve one another as Paul makes so uh, clear within his other passages of scripture which some we have we dealt with on even last week now verses 16 and 17 paul explains uh and and expounds somewhat on this liberty of which he speaks when he says let no man deny you of your liberty in christ when he said let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of the sabbath days which are a shadow of things to come but the body is of christ Let me begin by saying that Christ is the fullness of the Godhead bodily, as Paul makes uh, very clear within this epistle to the Colossians. And all the promises of God are yes and amen, or fulfilled and complete in Jesus. And so Paul warns in these verses to to the church that they not allow others to place them in religious bondage. And, And notice what he says here. He says, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink, or in respect of a holy day, or the new moon, or the Sabbath days. So here he's saying all of these things that he mentions here, consider this for a moment. Meat, drink, holy days, new moon, Sabbath days. New moon is speaking of, for instance, some of the feasts and things that would have taken place. The point is, Paul is saying that that the the church is not to, that you should not allow, the church of Colossae should not allow for these men to come in and impose upon them some religious bondage or some religious obligations that they are to fulfill while being distracted from the truth of Christ, who is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In verse 17, he goes on to say, which are a shadow. All of these things were a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. And so Paul is pointing their attention back to Christ, to the fullness of Christ, to the preeminence of Christ, and as well making certain that they do not become distracted by these religious things or even religious ceremonies. Now, I warned you, we are to be careful that we're not placed or allow others to impose upon us religious bondage. Now, obviously, 
um, I also want to state this because I believe it's of, of the utmost importance that we understand this truth, and hopefully most of you do already. Uh, this is not in any way inferring that we are to embrace antinomianism, or in other words, that we are to live as though there is no law or we're under no law. Now, Paul says in Romans, of course, are, are we un- we're not under the law, but we're under grace. And of course, Paul is speaking there of the fact that we are not under the condemnation of the law, but we've been delivered by the grace of God. But again, in Corinthians, Paul writes concerning the statement many people speak and reference when Paul says, I'm paraphrasing, but that I become all things to all men. And in that passage in Corinthians, Paul makes it very clear to those who are under the law as one who is under the law. So he's saying to the Jew, I approach them as a Jew, which he was. Then he says, and those who are without law as one without law, but unto the law of Christ. And, and he says, makes that extra statement there to clarify that he's not saying I live lawlessly, but I live under the law of Christ, and the law of Christ is that of righteousness. So Paul is saying, I am a slave to righteousness, but I am free from religious bondage, and I am also, because to those without law, to the Gentiles, those who did not have the law of God, those to whom the law of God was not given, speaking of Old Testament, he says, I, I approach them and live without law. Again, not lawlessly, not as one who embraces antinomianism, but saying that law doesn't matter or you know, we'd live as we please. But whether he said, I'm free from the law and it's bondage and I'm free from religious ceremony, he says, and I don't have to live accordingly. I can live as one who is free from all of that while still remaining under submission to the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. And so there's no excuse for anyone to live unrighteously, obviously. And Paul is not saying that. But he is explaining and expressing the fact that we do not have to live in religious bondage. So again, while there are many who may profess or proclaim that you must do this or you must do that, you yourself should be rooted and grounded in Scripture as a follower of Christ, as a disciple of Christ, enough to know what the scriptures teach and the context of that teaching. And that's important in verse 17 of what Paul says. He Notice he says, which are a shadow of things to come. So he's not denouncing all of these things and saying they never had a use or a purpose. No, they had a very distinct use and purpose, which was to be a shadow of that which was to come. He said, but the body is of Christ. And so we are of Christ. We are not of religious ceremony. We are not of religious duties. We are not of religious bondage. We are of Christ. And Christ is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Multiple other scriptures, I referenced many of these last week. Actually, we read them, uh, address this matter also. Matthew 15, 7 through 9. Galatians 6, or I'm sorry, 1, 6 through 10. Uh, 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. Romans chapter 14, verses 2 through 6. And Hebrews 9, 9 through 12. And this is by no means an all exhaustive list. But rather, in these verses, in these passages, you clearly see where these matters are addressed concerning religious bondage or being freed from religious bondage or the arguments that might surround religious bondage. And again, I don't want to belabor the point, but specifically in Romans chapter 14, where Paul mentions about uh, the, the eating meat or not eating meat, and, the, and he also in Romans mentions about the weaker brother or the stronger brother. And, and in dealing with all of those matters, Again, whether one was convicted himself of doing or not doing was not the matter. And whether one could or could not do within his own liberty of his own conscience in Christ, he then, rather than condemn one for doing or not doing, 
he addresses the matter in which we are to relate to one another as one who may be weaker or one who may be stronger. Again, the, the weaker brother, for instance, and Paul really says that in our text, the weaker brother would be one who would judge and meet or drink or whatever else and say, oh, you do this, you must do this, or this is what's necessary, whereas it could be a weaker brother or it could just be someone imposing upon them religious bondage just in general. But yet he's saying that those who would do such that you, you need to understand your liberty in Christ and understand the context of all of these matters which were ordained by God. Again, I remind you in Galatians of the matter of circumcision, which Paul brings up because the Judaizers imposing upon the Galatian churches that they were all must be circumcised. You have to be circumcised if you're to be saved. And so in doing so, the circumcision itself was not wicked or evil or sinful, of course, it was ordained by God in the Abrahamic covenant as a token of the Abrahamic covenant. So this, this was something God instituted, but yet what, what has happened is the people had totally misunderstood the entire context of this institution and what it really represented. Hence, they were enforcing others to live by this, which has now been fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is talking about here as well when he speaks of a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. So we are not of holy days. We are not of uh, uh, circumcision. We are not of uh, feast and, and Sabbath. And, no, we are of Christ. And in Christ there is this liberty because Christ is the fulfillment of the entirety of the Old Testament. So everything that God had required of man and man failed in every requirement that God had made. But yet everything that God required of man was perfectly fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are of Christ. And hence is our liberty. Again, not to do as we will, but to embrace his sufficiency and his righteousness and live in submission, acknowledging and recognizing that he, Christ, is worthy of submission and that he is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The writer of Hebrews, again, summarizes this matter, Hebrews 13, 9. I want to read this again to you. Be not carried about with diverse and strange doctrines, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace and not with meats. I think this is a phenomenal verse, and it goes on to say, which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. So here, Paul or the writer of Hebrews is saying, that we are not to be carried out with diverse, many different, strange teachings, but rather the good thing is that the heart be established with grace, not with meats, not with the law, not with ceremony, and not with ceremonial traditions, not all of these things, which have not profited them, which have been occupied therein. It's been no benefit to them. I'm reminded of Galatians chapter 2, of course, where Paul uh, says to the church of Galatia, concerning all this matter of the sufficiency of Jesus, and he says to them, as you recall, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And he says, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Galatians 2.21. So he says, if righteousness comes by the law, then Jesus died for no reason. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying when he says, it has not profited them that have been occupied therein. So anyone who's been occupied in these matters, anyone who has given themselves over to these matters, that that has not been a spiritual profit 
profit or benefit to them at all. And if that's what we are looking to, if that's what you are trusting or resting in, even in the smallest or slightest degree, then what you're really doing, as I said last week, is you are marginalizing the sufficiency and the work of Christ as though the finished work of Jesus needs some type of supplement on your part to fulfill something that Christ has not fulfilled. And that is the real danger here, and that is what is so important about understanding the teaching here in Colossians verses 16 through 19 as we've read thus far. Paul goes on, of course, and says in Galatians 5, 1 and 2, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. So he says, Behold, I, I Paul, say unto you, verse 2, that if, any, if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. So again, he's saying, if that's what you're resting in, it profits you nothing. You benefit nothing out of this. So do not, in other words, Paul is saying, do not exchange the freedom God has provided you in Christ for the bondage of religion of men. Why would you want bondage over the freedom that you've been given? Having examined Paul's exhortation to let no man judge you, we now will consider the second portion of Paul's practical exhortation to the Colossian believers in verses 18 and 19, in which Paul now says, do not allow or let no man defraud you of your reward in Christ. Verses 18 and 19, let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered and knit together, increaseth with the increase of God. So within this specific exhortation, Paul warns the Colossians of the importance of remaining vigilant regarding those who may attempt to rob them of the reward that would be for them by distracting them from the preeminence of Christ. Again, this is all important because Paul now speaks about the voluntary humility and worshiping of angels and intruding into those things which he hath not seen. Again, uh, you know, we, we live in a day, as I think you're very much aware, in which there is, by large, a great, and, and arguments go on about this, debates go on about this, books have been written about this on, on, on the contrasting sides and opposing sides. But the fact of the matter is, there, the, we live in a day in which it is common among, I would say, many professing, quote-unquote, practicing, if you will, believers in Christ or church attendees and those who would be a part or consider them part, themselves a part of the church, that there is this extra-biblical revelation or there's this mystical uh, uh, revelation of God. By the way, do we not remember that Gnosticism is defined by such? And the fact of the matter is, so really, Gnosticism still continues today in that respect, as though people have this mentality, I think it's, it's more, I think it's better and maybe more, uh, more uh, prominent than you may at first recognize as we speak of Gnosticism, we think of something in the first century church. Well, no, that was the introduction of it, if you will. But here you find that it's actually something that is very much so alive today within the modern day church. And, and I say modern day church loosely, but those who would attend and, and associate themselves with the body of Christ. And I say it for this reason. That there are many today, think of this for a moment, while absolutely neglecting the Word of God, while absolutely rejecting the truth of God's Word, while totally ignoring God's Word, they will claim that they have some special revelation from God, that they've seen things or heard things from God, God has spoken to them, they've had dreams and visions, and all of this extra-biblical stuff, while totally rejecting the truth of God's Word. And you know what they're really saying? Two things are happening here. Now, some may truly just be deceived, that's true. But here's what's really happening. What's happening is people are exalting themselves as though they are, they are lifting themselves to some 
some place to where they have some uh, prominence over others while totally being ignorant of the truth, rejecting the truth of knowing Christ and knowing God altogether as God has revealed himself through his word. And so in doing so, there's a pride that is associated with this, of course, but it also, notice what it does. It will also cause others to question or begin to stir among others this mentality of, well, I don't, I don't get that, or I've not experienced that. So what do they do? They begin to look towards that and those things rather than the Lord Jesus Christ. Here, how are you going to grow in faith? The Word of God. How are you going to grow in the knowledge of God in Christ? The Word of God. God is not going to appear to you and dump, open up your head and dump in your mind all the knowledge of Him. He's provided for us His Word. And we are to be diligent in the Word. And we are to study and grow in the Word and in the knowledge and faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this idea of some, of some mystical means by which we know God. No, it's spiritual without question. That we are, we are spiritual beings. And, he, and we have an, an eternity that waits for us. So we are spiritual and have eternal, internal uh, parts of our being without question. But yet, God is not mystical and nor, the, nor is the knowledge of God mystical. God is not mystic. God is a spirit. And we know him spiritually by his spirit through his truth that he has given to us in his word and no other means. And so Paul warns here and he says, do not let them beguile you of your reward. Well, how does that relate to the reward? Well, obviously it distracts from the person and preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ into other things, but also... It, it then prevents the body from functioning as the body, as God has called the body to function, in which means the body then as individual believers and the body as a whole is not submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ, which means there's no reward for one who lives in such a manner. In other words, the danger was not that someone was capable of literally stealing their reward from them, but rather if they allowed others to distract them from the lordship or preeminence of Christ, they would then forfeit any reward they might otherwise receive. The verb beguile, it means condemn. And the root from which the word is translated means rule or control. And so if the Colossian believers were to allow others to condemn them in their liberty and rule over them, controlling their freedom, rather than them submitting to the head of the body, which is Christ, that would result in them forfeiting the reward that awaited them. The Apostle John further expounded upon the relationship between the loss of reward and one being distracted from the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We must never forget this. I, I want to tie this together for you. Please don't, don't disengage here. You need to understand this. This is important. The question could then be asked, as I just said, how is it that one maintaining focus on the preeminence of Jesus and the Lordship of Jesus, how does that relate to one's loss or gain of reward? How, how is that even related? Because Aren't we, isn't the reward given for, the, for what we do? Isn't, aren't we rewarded for the things we do? Well, I believe that's a great misconception, obviously. We find in John's writing, he helps to tie this together some. In 2 John 7 and 8, he says, For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. So when John says, look to yourselves that you receive a full reward, he's not saying look within you deeply and do the best. No, he's saying watch over yourselves that you not allow others to deceive you concerning the truth of who Jesus really is. Now, 
John is dealing with the spirit of Antichrist here. He's saying there are those who confess that Jesus Christ is is, um, not come in the flesh, which again deals with Gnosticism all over again. Yet what he is saying is that you must beware lest you be distracted by the deceivers from the preeminence of Christ. For it is in Christ in which we have our reward, and it is in following after and submitting to Christ that we have such reward. So if one is professing that Jesus is not come in the flesh, or if one is professing that Jesus is not Lord or is not the Christ or the Messiah, then the result of that will be a loss of reward because the only way reward is ever gained is through Christ living and working in us to the Father's glory and honor. And so there's a connection here between reward, loss of reward, and one's view and therefore acknowledgement and living according to the person, the truth of the person of who Christ is. There is an absolute vital connection. The true connection which exists between the loss of reward and focus on Christ is in the fact, ultimately, that it is Christ who is the true reward of the believer. When it all comes down to it, what is our reward? What is it that we gain? While many will focus on heaven, many will focus on, uh, you know, which scripture references that. But many will place their focus on these things. Remember what Paul said, and we just studied this some weeks back, or months back now, but Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 8. Paul says, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. He says, for the superiority of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung. But then Paul follows with this statement. What is the result? It's that I may win Christ. So what is the reward? Who is the reward? What is truly the reward? It's Christ. We win Christ. So there is a reward to be gained at the judgment seat of Christ, however, as well as we're aware. Yet it is not that we have done something that merits this reward, but rather we have just simply submitted to the Lord's working in our lives for His glory, an acknowledgement of the truth of His Lordship, which results in our worship, our service to Him, which He then rewards. It's interesting because the word Service again. This is. I want to say something here. I don't know that I've ever said this to you quite like this or articulated in this manner. I think we confuse, I know we confuse worship. That's a given. And many people view worship, uh, they substitute uh, worship with praise. In other words, because it's easy for someone to sing music and get emotionally stirred up and raise a hand and shout or jump or holler or whatever else. That's easy for someone to do that without ever truly submitting themselves to God. And Jesus speaks against that again in Matthew whenever he says uh, that they, they draw near to me with their mouth, honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they do worship me, teaching uh, for doctrines the commandments of men. And, and so he's saying that they teach men's teaching as though it is God's teaching. And, and he says that that's a problem there, of course. And so there's a, a, there's a false worship. There's false worship. Um, obviously, and this idea, misconception of worship. So what is worship? Worship is submission to God. So let me say this to you in this fashion, because I think this is important for us to all understand. Men can serve.
serve, apparently serve God, outwardly serve God, and yet never worship God. And what I mean by that is this. Men can be busy doing, 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 apparently serving God, and yet never have a heart truly submitted to God. They can just be doing outward works. But no one can genuinely worship God without serving Him as well. So the point of the matter is, while you may work and never worship, you cannot genuinely worship without also serving. And even in the Old Testament, or in the book of, of Hebrews, for instance, referring to Old Testament, the scripture speaks of divine service, talking about the temple, and, or the tabernacle, that is, and the worship that took place, and the offering, the sacrifices, and such. And in all of that, the scripture speaks of divine service. Do you know what the word service there literally means? Worship. It's the divine worship or the ministry of worship or ministration of worship. And so what you find is that there is this divine service and we look at that and we think work, right? That's what we think of. We think, oh, service, we got to serve, we got to go, we got to do, we got to do, we got to do. And that's exactly how the Pharisees were. But the truth of the matter is divine service is actually divine worship, which results in biblical service and genuine worship and service of God. So again, you can outwardly work and never truly worship, and a lot of people do that. But you can never genuinely worship and not serve because that is submission to God and His will being accomplished through you. And so submitting to the Lordship of Christ results in our worship, our service to Him, which He then rewards. And how interesting is this? I mentioned this in closing last week. But 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he shall hath built thereon upon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Revelation 4, 10 and 11. The four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were here you find the casting of crowns in Revelation. What we find in these verses is that there is this foundation which is Christ. And if any man built upon it gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and stubble. And it's interesting because think about this for a moment. I've said this to you before. It's very practical, but yet true. When you look at the description that's given to us of heaven, and description that is given so that we can have an understanding of what it must be like in some, as we are in, bound to this earthly form in which we live, this body, the scripture refers to, of course, course gold and, and precious gems and such as that. And, and Paul here mentions, he says, Christ is that foundation. If a man builds there and, and, and upon that foundation gold, silver, precious stones, then he speaks about how these things will be tried by fire and yet that will survive and exist. But then he also says wood, hay, and stubble. What do we build? We build with wood, hay, and stubble. That's the building materials we use on planet Earth. And the whole point is that that which is done sourced from us, out of us, meaning the source of it is us, is all wood, hay, and stone, and that will be consumed by fire. Whereas the precious gold, silver, precious stones, 
that can stand the test of the fire and makes it through the fire. Now, I will say this, dross still must be consumed because the fact of the matter is even that which God does through us, we taint that, we pervert that because of our sinful fleshly nature. And so even the work God is accomplishing in and through us, it is still a work which we pervert, that we taint, that we that we uh, uh, we cause it to become tainted by human hands, if you will. And so that work as well goes through the fire. And anything that is not that which God has accomplished and performed is going to be consumed. It's purged, it's purified. And, and, and men are saved even so as by fire, because it's not, the point is that God has redeemed those who are at the judgment seat of Christ and those who have built upon it if, if it's their own work that they are performing, then it's all consumed. If it's that in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ, then it is purified, purged, and then it lasts and stands the test of, of time and the fire. And the reward, the casting of crowns, as Revelation 4 speaks, the reward is a result of submission to God working in us, at which point that work stands the test of fire in which all the impurity of our efforts and all that remains is God's work purified what's more the lord will then allow us to cast all rewards at his feet as we proclaim that he alone is worthy to receive glory honor and power again it's so interesting is it you've probably heard this before um speaking of reward how men will stand up and talk about how um you know i can't wait to get to heaven and receive my reward that god has given me and paul references this about he's fought a good fight he's kept the faith henceforth there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness righteousness which the lord the righteous judge shall give me that day and not to me only but to all those of course, who are submitted to the Lord and follow after him, Paul, Paul explains. So the point is, there is reward to be gained, yes. But you will find that Paul, Paul never, ever expresses his devotion and commitment to the work of Christ and Christ working to him, in him as though he's doing it all for the sake of what he can somehow gain out of this. But rather he says, meaning like physically that he gets, but rather he says, I... I forfeit all things to know Christ, to win him, to know him, and that he accomplishes his work and purpose through me. The bottom line is simply this, that Christ is the prize. And to submit to him and his word is to know him and to grow in him. God has given us Christ. The reward is the privilege of continuing to know him as he is revealed in his word. And as we will discover in our study of the last four verses of this passage, just as Paul introduced this exhortation by providing the basis for such action, Paul then follows up with the exhortation, this exhortation with an argument as to why any other action would be illogical. Notice what he says in verses 20 through 23. Wherefore, based on everything he just said, verses 16, 17, 18, and 19, wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. So here Paul goes on to further expound upon this, and he says, what logic would it be for you who are free in Christ, dead to sin, dead with Christ, raised in his resurrection, Free in him. Why would you live according to the commandments and traditions of men, which has no logical explanation as to why you would do so? And so there's freedom in Christ. Let not 
any man deny you of your liberty in Christ. Let not any man defraud you of your reward in Christ. Do not allow others to impose upon you this religious bondage that then turns your attention away from the sufficiency of the Savior who has redeemed you and who is all-sufficient and is pleasing to the Father. Do not allow anyone or anything to distract you from Him. But remember something. If you genuinely are submitting to the preeminent Christ, if you genuinely are submitted to the Lordship of Jesus, then that will result in your service to Him and living a life submitted unto Him, which results as well then in reward from Him, which we will give back to Him. And what a, what a privilege that is. That God would choose to work in and through man. I, I can't help but be reminded of the Old Testament in which the Scripture says, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? Who are we and what are we? Thank God he has chosen to be pleased to work in and through us to his glory, to his honor. And he allows us to be a participant. Listen, to live in the truth of the gospel is obviously a tremendous responsibility and a wonderful calling as a believer in Jesus Christ. But it's more than just a responsibility, as I've said to you many times. It is a privilege. For God has an eternal purpose, and He has chosen to include us in that eternal purpose. He's allowed us to participate in what He is doing when He never had to do that, but He's chosen to. That's a joy when we understand the truth of what God has done and what He's doing. Let's bow together. Father, thank you.